Yes, sir. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are listening from. This is the voice of A.B. Melchizedek, your servant, serving you all the way from the UK today. We've been on a journey regarding the Bible on this season. We've very briefly, uh, brusquely, or abruptly, if you like, um, discussed bits and bobs around the Bible. What it means to unbelievers, what it means to people who believe. We spoke about how to unbelievers, it's, you know, the only source of, uh, only source for, rather, historical Jesus scholars. We spoke about how it represents how it has shaped our lexicon on English language. We talked about its influence in the arts. Uh, Then we went ahead to talk about how or what the Bible means to believers. There we went into scripture a bit more. We talked about how it's a light to your feet and a lamp to your path. We talked about how um, it's spiritual food. So I've esteemed the words of your mouth. 23 verse 12 of Job. More than my necessary food. We talked about how uh, it's the way to grow. You know, read your Bible, pray every day as the old uh, nursery school hymn goes. Then we went ahead to talk about some quote-unquote disturbing things about the Bible. What skeptics will point at to say, oh, look, there's some evil here, there's some evil there. And, you know, we had a bit of a discussion around that. So that's where we've been on. Today, however, we are going to talk about why, why read the Bible. That's what we are looking at today. Why read the Bible? And before I get to the first reason, I'm going to tell a bit of a story. It's um, it's sort of a popular one. Uh, forgive me if you've heard it before. But I think it dovetails nicely with the first point, and that is the tale of the six blind men and the elephant. Six blind men and the elephant. So six blind men uh, went to the zoo. You know, they had been hearing wonderful things about the elephant, how it's a massive creature. And... um, you know, they've had a lot of facts about it. So they got excited. They said, you know what? We have to have a feel of this creature for ourselves. So they went into the zoo. And in the zoo, each of them had a feel of the elephant. So the first man grabbed the elephant's trunk and said, hmm, you know, the the elephant must be like a snake. It must look like a snake. The second guy grabbed the elephant's tail. He said, no, surely the elephant must be like a rope. The third guy felt the elephant's four legs. He said, no, surely this creature is like a table. The fourth guy touched the elephant's ears. He said, no, surely this creature is like a hand fan. Another guy touched the tusk. And he said, no, no, that this creature is like a spear. And then the last guy touched its body and said, no, this creature must be like a wall. So all of them went home arguing vociferously, you know, vituperating, if you would. They were very passionately arguing about what the elephant looked like, nobody conceding to the other. Now, if there is, there are obviously there are loads of lessons from this story, but 
if there is one thing I want to glean from this story that makes the first point is that people could be wrong. People could be sincere, but could be sincerely wrong. Um, so despite the best intentions in people's hearts, they could be wrong. Uh, the prophet Nathan, for example, when David said, I want to build God a house, you know, why will I go to my own, uh, you know, mansion there and look at where God is living. And then the prophet said, go ahead, do all that is in your heart. But then God corrected the prophet, said, go back and tell him not to build any house for me. Because he's a man of war, he has shed blood. But I will raise unto him a son that will be a man of peace. He will build my house. So pointing to Jesus and the fact that the gospel and God's kingdom is built on the foundation of peace, not of bloodshed. That is why, uh, you know, uh, the, the gospel is called the gospel of peace. You know, so having for your, for your shoes, Ephesians 6, I believe, have your feet shod with the gospel, with the person of the gospel of peace. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel, that bring tidings of peace. So that was the signal, that was the sign pointing to the fact that um, the gospel would be one of peace, not of bloodshed. You know, But the bigger point is that the prophet was wrong. And what's the lesson for us? Now, in as much as we can't joke with the Ephesians 4 hierarchy, say he ascended into heaven, he gave gift to men for some, he gave uh, pastors, prophets, and teachers. I've messed it up in it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, you know, for the edifying of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the equipping of the body. And all of that. In as much as we can't joke with that fourfold ministry, they could be wrong. Not because they are terrible people, but because of their own limitations, because they don't have the full picture. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, We see in parts and we prophesy in parts. But then a time will come when we will know all things. But we are not at that point yet. So we only see in part. So just like those blind men saw only part of the elephant, the fourfold ministry, irrespective of the degree of the grace upon them and the unction upon them, they don't have the full picture. And you know what? Neither will you. Neither will you, despite your studies, despite your best efforts. Why? Because you are limited. But if you do read the scriptures, you get an idea or a feel for what it says you know and if somebody is saying something inconsistent you have a baseline from which you can vet things so i mean and again this this is why like i'm always very careful about people who are quick to label people as false teachers or fake teachers and all of that you know, there are people who their entire quote and unquote ministry is all about criticizing people. Oh, this person, you know, nobody has truth except them. They are the only ones that can preach God a hundred percent accurately. Every other person is a false teacher. Those people you should be well of. You know, there's a place for calling out false teachers. So if somebody is telling you, oh, you know, all religions are one, or that um, Jesus was not God in human flesh, or that he didn't rise from the dead, or all those kind of things, or saying the Trinity doesn't exist, or, you know, certain core doctrines, if somebody is spreading these, then I mean, yes, by all means, let's call them out, you know, on those kind of things. But if the things they are preaching are not necessarily heels to die on, if there are things that do not impeach or defame the gospel or give it a bad name in any way, I mean, do you really need to go about, you know, blowing or blowing a trumpet, calling 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 them out on every nitpicky doctrine? You know, if, if you listen hard enough, you will hear something 
that you think is wrong. And if you talk to me too, I can't hear some, I will hear something that I think is wrong that you are saying. So let's follow the example of the master. You know, John the Baptist said he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Let's learn to do that. And how will you learn to do that is if you know what it says, if you know what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says. So that is the first reason uh, to read the Bible. Second reason to read the Bible, and this cannot be emphasized enough. And it's because there is so much going around in the culture. The culture is at war with the scripture. It's interesting because like the more I think about it, you know, it's, ju it's just like Egypt in the Bible. You know, Egypt is not just a place. Egypt in scripture also represents a system that is antithetical to God. You know, so how do I know this? If you look at the book of Genesis, when Joseph was called from prison to see the king, to see Pharaoh, what was the first thing he did? He shaved his beards. It's interesting because Israel, they kept their beards long normally, but if they were mourning, they shaved their beards. But Egypt, they shaved their beards normally. But when they were mourning, they let it grow. When Joseph's family came to Egypt, Joseph told them that, look, if Pharaoh, when he was going to present them to Pharaoh, he told them, if Pharaoh asks you what you do for a living, tell them your business is about cattle. Why does he say so? He said, because a shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And what is one of Jesus's uh, what, what is one of Jesus's titles, the good shepherd? Severally, you see God telling Israel, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. I will raise up a shepherd for them. But to the Egyptians, a shepherd was an abomination. But to God, a shepherd was the means or methodology or machinery through which salvation would be effected. So you see Egypt and Israel represents that conflict between the culture today and Christianity, if you would, and the Bible, if you would. If you go to the book of Revelation, in fact, that highly symbolic book, it talks about Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord also was crucified. So Egypt is a rejection of Christ, a rejection of that shepherd. An attempt to pretend he doesn't exist, to stifle his work. And that is what culture is doing today. So it is becoming increasingly important that we as Christians know the Bible. You know, of all the weapons of spiritual warfare, the Bible is the only offensive one. It says the, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Every other thing is defensive. But that word of God is offensive. And there has been no better time than now, no more apt time than now to yield that sword and point it to the breast of culture. But how will you yield that sword? If you have not read, you know, what makes it up. If you don't know what it's saying. Because culture now is just completely backwards. Everything the Bible stands against is what they stand for. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live, but not I. Well, the life I live through the flesh, I live by the love of the Son of... Uh, I live through uh, true true faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, I was not something in the dictionary of Paul. That's Galatians 2.20, by the way. I was not in his dictionary at all. 
it was never a matter of I. A matter of fact, if you look at the cross, the cross is I cancelled. But what does culture revolve around today? It revolves around do what makes you happy. Do you. Do you. You know, as a matter of fact, I was watching a commercial the other day and the slogan was do what makes you happy. And immediately I asked, I said, look, killing people in very specific ways makes a serial killer happy. But do we encourage him to do it? defiling and abusing children makes a pedophile happy do we encourage him to do it so what do you mean by do what makes you happy when society itself is formed on the fabric that we can't let men do what makes them happy because society will result in chaos that's why we have laws and that's why we have prisons there's a minimum standard of behavior that you have to conform to irrespective of how it makes you feel and if you fail to meet that standard of behavior, we will isolate you from the society because you are a danger to us. So society walks on that assumption that you can't leave men to do what makes them happy. You end up with chaos. The amount of I and my in culture, my body, my choice. So what about the life within the body? Nah, we don't care. It's, it's, it's about me. It's about me. It's about me. That's why divorce rates are skyrocketing like crazy. It's about me. He doesn't make me happy. Have you made him happy? That's why I said husbands love your wives. Ask Christ love the church. And how did Christ love the church, giving himself for it? Self-immolation. He literally died to himself. And he says, husbands, love your wife in that way. So your love should not be based on what you can get, but based on how much you can give. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you love, you give. That was John 3.16. John 3.30, I believe. No, it's not John 3.30. I, I can't remember. I, said, I think John 3.34. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Love gives. But culture says no, love takes. Love looks for what it can get. And love walks away. When he doesn't get what he can get. That's selfishness. And all of this is a very strong confirmation of biblical prophecy. If we go to Timothy, I believe Second Timothy 3. But notice, in the last days, this is from verse 1, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of God, lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. But of all these terrible things, what was the very first thing mentioned? Lovers of themselves. So the fact that they love themselves is the Fonset Origo, is the foundation of all this, if you would, rot emitting from them. Self-love is at the center. And what is at the center of culture today? Self-love. Do what makes you happy. And a lot of these things, they couch them in fantastic ways. You know, it makes it, it sound so good. But the moment you start thinking about it, you say it's nonsense. Like they do what makes you, makes you happy kind of mantra. Many agendas are being shoved down our truths. And as Christians today, we need to have a solid Bible-based opinion on these issues. Because if you don't form those issues, the media and culture will form it for you. If you don't form a stand, if you don't have a stand on these issues, 
the media and culture will form it for you. You need to be on one side of the divide. You really need to be on one side of the divide. Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. There's no middle ground. A sword, a sword, a sword. Left or right. He says, who, who, he who is not with me is against me. There's no neutrality. Are you with me or against me? Are you with me or against me? There's no middle ground. There's no let's sit on the bench and wait for the second half. No. Are you with me or against me? And the biblical opinion these days is the unpopular one. Why? Because it says the whole world, 1 John 5, I believe is 19, says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And if it's under the sway of the wicked one, if it's under the sway of darkness, then light will be discomforting. Light will be fought against. And there's a new tactic being used now. They just call you names. You know, because it's funny. And, and it, it brings me to, again, maybe I will have another episode on that. But it brings me to this issue of LGBT, you know. And it's so funny because these are people who preach, you know, acceptance and love people and accept people and accept people. But how come they never accept people that don't agree with them? Have you ever thought of that? The moment you don't agree with them, there's fire on the mountain. But they are the ones preaching love. They are the ones preaching acceptance. But their acceptance is conditional. Conditional on the fact that you accept them. So the moment you say you don't agree with them, they say you are a bigot. They say you are a dinosaur. You are, you are, you know, you are not progressive. And I heard somebody say this, and I 100% agree. He said, look, they think they are progressive, right? That they've progressed, they've advanced. But there's nothing new in what they are doing. They are, <laughs> what they are doing goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah. So they are actually retrogressing to biblical times. They are retrogressing. To the times of, you know, the debauchery in ancient Rome. They are retrogressing to all those orgies and all of that during the Greek, uh, during the, during the Greco-Roman era and all of that. So they are not advancing at all. They are retrogressing. And they, are, and they call themselves progressive. Even you hear some heretics, and I call them heretics because that's what they are. They say they are progressive Christians. So the Bible becomes a pick and mix, you know, it becomes buffet. It becomes KFC. You take bucket chicken with a slice of coleslaw, but you don't want the veggie menu. If this is the only reason you take the Bible seriously, that's more than enough. We are at a war. We are at war with culture. Heavy war. And we need people who are going to stand up to it and say no. Like Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We would rather burn than bow. We rather die. We rather die than submit to these agendas. The book of Jeremiah, uh, the book of Isaiah, I believe, said they walked in a way that was not good after their own heart. Why is that? Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Desperately wicked. The human heart. So if you walk after the way your wicked heart leads you, then you are walking into perdition into destruction like peter said save yourselves from this untoward generation there is a there is a way this generation is going 
This culture is heading for judgment. God will judge it. God judged Babylon. The symbolic, uh, the symbolic, uh, if you would, in the book of Revelation, it was symbolic for all the debauchery that was going on at the time. So if God judged Babylon in the person of the great whore, in the book of Revelation, I believe is 19 or so, and he's going to judge the culture as well. So save yourselves from that culture. Exodus 23.2 Do not follow multitude to commit evil. I am the Lord your God. Peter said they will find it strange that you don't go after the same excesses as they do. And that's fine. They forget they will give account of everything they've done, everything they've said, all their blasphemous words, all their deeds. A day of reckoning is coming. And when that day of reckoning comes, it will be like the book of Revelation. We are kings, we are hiding, and we are begging for rocks to fall on them because they could not withstand the wrath of the Lamb. And why was there wrath? Because the mercy of that lamb had been despised. Says he, he who disobeyed Moses' law died without mercy. Of how much more sorrow punishment will he be counted worthy of? That tramples on the Son of God and counts the blood wherewith he was sanctified as a mere thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. How much more sorrow punishment! Will such a person be subject to? Will such a generation be subject to? Third reason, First Peter 3.15, and this follows on from the previous reason. First Peter 3.15. For the life of me, I'm struggling here. Where's Peter? Peter should be after Hebrews, not so. Ooh, no. James is after Hebrews, then Peter. Yeah, there we go. First Peter 3.15. It says, and I read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready. To give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready to give an answer. Always be ready to give an answer. Your faith can come up at any time. You have to be ready to talk about it. You can't be caught napping. Says, get your loins and let your lamp be ever burning. You can't be caught napping. You can't be like the foolish virgins in matthew 25 that fell asleep when the bridegroom came you have to be ready at any point in time any topic can come up on your faith several in the book of acts it says paul reasoned in fact in one of them said as his manner was he reasoned with them in the synagogue off the top of my head, I think 17.3, I think 18.7. He reasoned of acts. In the, he reasoned in the synagogue with them. And when Paul was talking, he was talking to a lot of the time educated people. You know, he went to Mass Hill in Athens. Athens was the intellectual center of the day. And he stood on that hill and gave a powerful sermon. And he was there waiting for somebody. But while waiting, he said his spirit stared him when he saw the idolatry. And 
He started sharing the gospel with them. How much more ready should we be to share the gospel? Now again, obviously there are, there's a spiritual element to this as well because uh, the Bible says it, says it starts with sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Then be ready. So there's a spiritual element to it as well. But there's an intellectual element to it. You can't get more spiritual than Jesus. Yet on an intellectual level, he communicated with the doctors and the lawyers of the law. The doctors of the law and the lawyers of his day. He spoke to lawyers, people with PhD, LLM, BL, people with, uh, you know, chartered accountants and uh, airline pilots and all those people. He spoke with soldiers. Obviously, somebody who said there were no planes back then. You know, I'm using a figure of speech called hyperbole. But he also spoke to fishermen. He blessed children. Paul said, to this day, I don't cease as God grants me grace, witnessing to both small and great. Small and great. This is important because we are living in a time where you know this is the era of pop atheism somebody sits down on youtube looking smug and giving you a thousand and one reasons why god made a wrong decision <laughs> so why did god do this and why did god do that you know hmm. god have mercy but you should be able to hold conversations with such people And you are never going to be able to hold such conversations if you don't study yourself. You live in a time where people in the culture are trying to tell you what the Bible says and doesn't say. You know, during the Mitsu campaign, there was, you know, somebody that was saying, oh, that, you know, God is a Mitsu offender because he impregnated. <laughs> He impregnated Mary against her will. And that's just very stupid. Have you opened your Bible at all? You've read Matthew, 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 the first chapter, Luke, the first chapter, read those things at all? Or you just feel like being stupid? You know, say, oh, God is pro choice because it says, choose you this day who you will serve. How stupid is that? So it says, don't be carried away by diverse doctrines. It's a good thing the heart be established with grace, but do not be carried away by diverse doctrines. People are trying to preach all kinds of nonsense. And if you don't know, and if you don't know what the Bible says, you are likely to be swayed by them. Psalms 119. Just to wrap up this point, I have a feeling I won't find the verse I'm looking for, but hey ho, there we go. So shall I have an answer, verse 42, for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. So shall I have an answer, so shall I have an answer. Where's the answer? The word, for I trust in your word. I trust in your word. Fourth reason. And we talked about this a while back. Proverbs 6.22. Proverbs 6.22. 
Proverbs, the sixth chapter, and the twenty-second verse. When you roam, they will lead you. Talking about the Father's command, the word. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you are awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. When you are awake, it will talk to you. The Bible is how God speaks to the believer. It's how God speaks. I believe it's 113. Uh, is it 139? That doesn't sound right. I think it's 138 verse 2. Let me fact check myself. Versus, uh, you have exalted your word above all your name. Yep. 138 verse 2. You have magnified your word above all your name. And what is the word? Say, so this is the word through which the gospel is being preached to you. The scriptures. The Bible is how God speaks. It is an anchor for the soul. It is peace to the saints. So I will hear what the Lord will say. He will speak peace to the saints. He will strengthen their hearts with peace. So in the world you would have trouble, but in me you would have peace. John 16th chapter, 33rd verse. The beauty of the Bible is it's personal as well as general. What I say unto you, I say unto all. There's that element to it. It's general. There are doctrines, you know, immutable, unchangeable. Malachi 3 6. So I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. But then there are elements that are for you as a human being, as an individual. And both of them can overlap sometimes. What I say unto you, I say unto all. Such is the supernatural power of this book. As well, it says, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy. There is something, Revelation 1, 3, by the way. There is something the book is saying to they. There is something the book is saying to he. I hate talking about myself passionately. I honestly hate it. But just as an illustration, and this is just one of so many times that this has happened. I can't count how many times. But for example, I remember when I was going to come to the UK, you know. I was in church that day, still very nervous about the whole thing. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't know anybody in the UK, you know, closest thing I had to a family was like, I mean, yeah, it's a family friend, a bit far away, you know, just never been outside the country before, now you are outside, <laughs> matter of fact, I remember yesterday, somebody asked me, have you been abroad before? You know how they talk, have you been abroad? You've been abroad? I said, bro, this is abroad, <laughs> I'm currently abroad. <laughs> This is abroad to me. What are you talking about abroad? Anyway, uh, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, so the before I came here, I was still, like, obviously mulling things in my mind, you know. 
how is this going to work? How am I going to survive? Who am I going to talk to? How am I going to be moving around? You know. And I remember the very first verse the preacher quoted. And I'm going to read that verse. It was Genesis 12. Verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country. Matter of fact, she was reading a different translation, you know. And he said, Leave your country, leave your family, leave your parents' house, and go to a land I will show you. Those words were like arrows into my heart, into my soul. And those words gave me immense peace. Knowing that God sent me out of my country. On a mission to a foreign land. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. So whenever I'm having very rough times or, you know, a lot of people in Africa are under the impression that the moment you leave Africa, all your problems in life are solved, past, present, future. Like the salvation work of Christ. They are under that impression. And I don't blame them because, yeah, obviously things are not as uh, pristine, you know, and sublime as they are in foreign territories, you know. But being outside your country, being an immigrant in another man's country is not the first choice. It comes with its own challenges as well. It's not heaven by any stretch. Far better than Africa, don't get me wrong. But it's not heaven. It's not perfect. So anyway, point is whenever I'm having any of these rough days or things are not things are just very tough. I remember those words from Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I will bless you there. I will bless you there. I will bless you there. And I say, you know what? I'm blessed here. I'm blessed here. I'm blessed here. And that keeps me going. You know, so that's just an example. Now, in context, God was speaking to Abraham. There was a whole other thing going on. They that here. But for my situation at that particular time, that was for me. He that reads. That's the power of this book. The fifth reason, and I made reference to it earlier, but it's because we are living in the age of information. And while that is fantastic, it does raise problems because, you know, big data, they will tell you there are four Vs of big data. You know, there's volume, there's velocity, there's uh there's volume there's velocity there's veracity and uh yes the, the last v has evaded me now but the point the the point i was hitting on there is the veracity bit how do you verify this amount of data that is moving all over the place what is true what is a lie what is fact what is an exaggeration what is accurate what is a distortion
and this information overload applies even to all things spirituality and all things Christianity. Now, the one thing to bear in mind, the beacon of hope, is that you can't counterfeit something that doesn't exist. So if there's a counterfeit, there definitely is a real one. You, there can't be a counterfeit of what is no of what is not real. To have a fake fifty pounds note, there has to be a real one. And the only way to guard against these things is to have a solid biblical basis, to be able to check. To have a baseline, a lens through which you are able to vet things. So everybody has a Jesus. You know, a New Age person has a Jesus. An atheist has a Jesus. A Muslim has a Jesus. But how do you know what is fake and what is real? You know, the Bible says, test the spirits. I believe it's First John 4. 1. The way to know, to be able to spot fake, is to know the real so well that you can spot a fake from 100 miles away. So, for example, I'm currently reading a book. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Donnie Brasco. There's a movie about it uh, made in 1997 played by a very young and uh, handsome jo Johnny Depp at the time and uh, the immortal uh, Al Pacino was well, based on a true life story of a detective called uh, Joseph Pistone so he went undercover with the FBI uh, and infiltrated the mafia so his cover story was that he was a jewel thief. That was his undercover story. So what did he do? He spent a truckload of time studying original jewelry. A lot of time. Just seeing what original jewelry looked like. And one of the earliest ruses that got him some goodwill with the mafia is when somebody came to him with a diamond and he said it's fugazi fugazi meaning fake he said he didn't even have to look at it long because he knew the real one so well that he could tell a fake and the person went to prize it and sure enough it was fake so in the same vein it's possible to know the jesus of the bible so well that you can spot a fake one from a mile from miles away. So, for example, if they, if they say Jesus is a servant of Allah, and then Allah tells you, you know that um, that he spreads hate among a community of people. I believe it's Surah five verse fourteen. You know, he said he spread hate among the Christians until the day of judgment you know jesus cannot be servant to a god that speaks that way or to a god that endorses you know that uh, his prophets can have sex with a with an endless line of women surah 33 verse 50 of the quran the moment you hear a Jesus that says he's a servant of that kind of God, he says it's not possible. You, you know it's not possible. If you hear of a Jesus that unconditionally affirms people, you know that's nonsense as well. Jesus unconditionally loved, but not unconditionally affirmed. He called people sons of Satan, called people fools, blind, hypocrites, flipped the table on the money on the money changers in the temple. He didn't go into the temple and say, dude, I'm giving you positive vibes, dude. It's so cool. Rock on, dude. No. 
That's a hippie Jesus. It's not the Bible. It's not the Bible one. So I hope uh, with this, as they say in primary school, <laughs> debate club, with these few points of mine, I hope I've been able to convince you and not confuse you. <laughs> but yeah, with these few points, I hope we will be able to see the importance. We should really give the Bible priority. He said, my son, Proverbs 4 verse 20, attend to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to all who find them and medicine to their flesh. In other words, prioritize the word. Prioritize the scripture. More than ever, it's becoming important, way more than ever now, even if not for yourself, for your children. For your children. Don't let a demonic teacher put your son in a dress and tell him to hide it from you. Don't let somebody tell your child to, you know, about pronouns and things like that when they are just two years old and barely know their left hand from their right hand. Even if not for yourself, for the sake of your children. Because the culture is a cesspool of all things cantankerous. And deceitful and grotesque. It is a word that makes Sodom and Gomorrah almost look like the Garden of Eden. And it's going to get worse. Don't for one second think the world will get better. No. Bible says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The world can get better. It will get worse. But your job in the midst of it is to be light as much as you can. And to be light, you have to have light in you. And as we said earlier, the commandment is a lamp. The law is the light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. On this note, I say life is short. In the context of eternity, nothing matters except what you do for God and the gospel and the kingdom. Take care.